I'm gonna get on the old turnpike and I'm gonna ride. I'm gonna leave this town till you decide which one you want the most. Those opera stars on me. Milwaukee, here I come from Nashville, Tennessee. Good morning and welcome to episode 622 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland. Hi, Ben. Hi. Later in the show, Sahadev will be talking to Joe Block, who does the radio play-by-play for the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, Before that, though, we will be talking to J.P. Breen, who wrote the Brewers chapter for us, uh, both player comments and essay, and is an author at Baseball Perspectives. Hi, J.P. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. Um, Of course. We had you on May 1st. We had you on this show. And uh, it was a little bit of a different world. We had you on because the Brewers had started so hot that we just could not avoid talking about how hot they had started. And I'm curious, uh, how long into the season did you keep that fantasy alive that they were actually going to be the the Royals or or whatever of the 2014 season? Uh, It's a good question. I mean, I think until probably mid-August, mid to late August until the wheels really started to fall apart. But... I mean, they were still at least having a share of the NL Central lead until, I believe, the beginning of, of September. So it was a viable dream for the vast majority of the season, and that's why there was a lot of discomfort, anger, and disbelief in the Brewers' front office, especially with Mark Atanasio, after the, the season really debated on whether or not he was going to make some pretty big moves uh, both in the coaching staff and in the front office, uh, ended up not doing too much. But there there was a lot of anger and uh, demands for accountability, I suppose you would say. Well, it's such a weird thing because um, they were so they were in first place when August ended. So when when minor league call ups, when the you know September call ups came in that Sunday night, uh, they were joining a first place club. And on the one hand, you could say, oh, geez, what a what a disaster that they blew it at the end and they didn't do enough in the you know at the trade deadline or they didn't hold it together or the manager couldn't keep it together but i mean but for a fluke of history uh that kept the baseball season from just being 146 136 games uh they could have they could have been the champions like they how do you, it's it seems like it's such a hard thing to decide whether this was a a good team or a bad team when it's uh, disappointing in the end. But for five months, they were the best team in their division. For five months, they were better than the Cardinals and the Pirates and just about everybody else. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. I mean, if you look at what Carlos Gomez has done, being able to cement himself as one of the top outfielders in the National League, uh, Jonathan Lucroy took a huge step forward to really become the face of the franchise. But late in the year, it was a combination of Ryan Braun's thumb being so bad he could hardly hold on to the bat. And then the bullpen started to have issues uh, anywhere from, I mean, K-Rod wasn't, K-Rod frankly wasn't very good since the end of May. And that was held together just in terms of he didn't have many blown saves, but he had almost a four and a half ERA from uh, the end of May going forward. And so the bullpen just wasn't as good as it was early in the year where they were able to stake themselves to a pretty nice lead. Um, But then you also have a a situation as well where as 
Gene Segura wasn't able to put things together and he had a tough year, you know, both at the plate and just in his personal life. And so it was tough to see him struggle down, down the stretch. But, you know, Mark Reynolds was dreadful to the point that they were putting in Matt Clark to play first base. And so it was, it was a comedy of errors near the end of the year where the team just couldn't seem to get anything right. And it really stunk, sunk the ship. And it, it made everybody have a sour taste in their mouth. And like you said, everybody forgets that for five months, the team was actually quite good. So your essay um, in the annual was sort of looking at how the Brewers have never uh, regretted any of their big moves. There's this idea that especially small and mid-market teams have to be very uh, protect- protective of their prospects and they you know, really shouldn't trade prospects for veterans unless it's really really the perfect time because they'll definitely come to regret it kind of an idea and you showed that with the brewers it hasn't been that case at all when they've been aggressive they've either been able to replace the prospects they've uh, they've left behind uh, or that they've sent away uh, or they've uh, found great value in the openings that trading those prospects have, have been. anyway the, that's the kind of summary of it but i'm curious do you feel like the uh, were you sh- surprised at how unaggressive they were as a team this season, particularly the trade deadline and in the August waiver period, adding what Gerardo Parra and uh, Jonathan Broxton, and and that was that was it, right? Yeah, that was it, and it was surprising in a sense because any time that the organization has had a chance to make the playoffs, Mark Atanasio has put money on the table, or uh, Doug Melvin has put prospects on the table, or a little bit of both, and they've done something to make it happen they've done something to make a pretty strong push so it was a little bit strange to see them be in first place and be in contention and not uh really put the pedal to the floor um but at the same time you look at what they have in the farm system which is not overly strong i i I do think that the brewer's system because it lacks upside sometimes people overlook the fact that they actually do have some role players on there and even though role players aren't going to get anybody at the top of prospect list, it, guys like Jimmy Nelson, guys like uh, Tyrone Taylor, guys you know like Chris Davis even, that people uh, either overlook or don't give too much love on the prospect list just because they don't have super high ceilings. Uh, they, they have something to deal, but they don't have any headlining piece that was going to get them David Price, though. One, I suppose, could argue nobody gave up a headline piece to really get David Price. Um, And so in in that realm, it was really about who they were going to be able to go grab. And and they don't have the prospects to be able to do it. And unless you were going to offer up somebody like uh, Willie Peralta, which just didn't make sense for the team last year, if they did want him to make a a run for the postseason. Um, and, And so... You look at what they were able to do, and they were able to to add a couple of nice complementary pieces, but ultimately it was the core that wasn't able to sustain them, and they didn't have the, the trade pieces to be able to add to that core. So they did do some things this offseason. I wanted to ask you about the first base situation, because the Brewers have a first baseman now, or at least half of one, which is half a first baseman more than they've had for a couple of years now. So... After the Betancourt and the Overbay slash Reynolds eras, how excited are you for the Adam Lind era? <laughs> uh, it's 
Uh, it's going to be, I mean, other than I think his beard game gets a little bit off from time to time. I think Adam Lind is going to be a breath of fresh air just because, I mean, who's been at first base? It's been Alex Gonzalez, Uni Betancourt, Blake Lolly played there for a little, little bit. Um, Sean Halton. And then there's been anyone from Mark Reynolds to uh, Matt Clark to Jason uh, Rogers. And just they've been truly awful at first base since Prince Fielder left. And so being able to have somebody that can mash righties and just, you know, whatever, let's we'll be able to find somebody who can handle lefties a little bit, uh, whether that, you know, who that's going to look like uh, come opening day is going to be a little bit strange. But uh, it's going to be a pretty big upgrade. And if Adam Lynn can take advantage of the park and, and handle righties pretty well, could look at a, a first base that's at least league average, which would be, I don't know, what, a, a couple of wins added to the, to the you know, the, the war scoreboard, if you will, or the warp scoreboard. Mm-hmm. How is, how is Renicky as a, a platoon manager? Uh, he very much hesitates to say that he is any, any kind of platoon. But if you look at what he did with uh, Jeanette and Weeks last year, he was on a very strict platoon with both of them. So he's willing to play the the righty-lefty matchups. He doesn't like to call it that just because I don't think he wants to lock himself into anything when he is uh, he's making up his lineups. But I suspect that you'll have somebody um, at least capable of handling lefties. And, and right now it looks like it's going to be Luis Jimenez most likely. Um, coming off the bench and, and adding some, I don't know, coverage, I suppose, uh, at, at both corner infield spots. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised to, to let, if the Brewers let, uh, Adam Lind fail before they actually put him into a platoon because they did the same with Ricky Weeks before, uh, bringing up Jeanette as well. And so he, he likes to let guys kind of play themselves into a platoon, even if, in terms of roster construction, they'll have somebody uh, ready. Yeah, I think I recall I, I have a saved SQL report that I run maybe half a dozen times a year just to look at the percentage of plate appearances that a team takes with the platoon advantage. And of course, Oakland is always right at the top and the Indians are always right at the top and they have lots of switch hitters and platoons and everything. And the Brewers, I think, I recall are always like right at the bottom of that list. I don't know whether it's Renicky or whether it's the roster construction more, but it seems like they they don't do as much as, as those teams that we talk about doing that often. So uh, I will ask you about the other trade, also the the one where, where the Brewers sent the more experienced player elsewhere, the Gallardo trade. What did you make of that? I, I was frankly surprised that they were moving Gallardo just because it's a, it's a season in which right now in whether it's advertisements, whether it's, it's in interviews or what have you by all accounts, they they are planning on competing. And so moving somebody who is not only a veteran, but somebody who was league average last year in the rotation and, and moving that is a pretty creative step. Now, there are some people that are concerned and frustrated that for Gallardo, they didn't go and get anybody that had truly high upside in terms of prospects, right? I mean, they they went and got Sardinas and they are Sardinas and they went and got uh, Corey Nebel and then Marco Dip, Marcos Diplon. But 
none of those are going to rank really highly on most people's prospects prospects list. Now for the Brewers prospects list, they did pretty well. Um, but none of those guys are going to be cornerstone pieces for the franchise anytime soon. You've got a bullpen arm. You've got somebody that I've seen comps put on for like Cesaris Torres or maybe like a glove first, no hit shortstop kind of guy. And then, and Diplon is down in, in rookie ball. So in terms of adding to what they have for young talent, there there's not uh, as much hype there as it could be. But at the same time, if you look at what the Brewers have done for the past, oh, I'd say half dozen years uh, or so, anytime that they have acquired young young pieces, or you look at the Granky trade, for example, when they got uh, Segura, they got Helwig, and they got uh, Ariel Pena, they prioritize getting people that are very near MLB ready. And so for right now, when they're looking at selling the pieces to the fan base and they're looking at selling the, pe- the pieces that came in in terms of the future, they can market them as ready to step in and ready to come in and help the team push forward for an NL Central crown. So in that way, it makes perfect sense for what they've, they've been doing. Anytime they've been sending players out or bringing players in. They're trying to walk this tightrope in which they know they need to upgrade their young talent, but they're not willing to rebuild going forward. And so this was the type of move you wanted them to make because they had Jimmy Nelson. He didn't have a starting rotation spot, but he was ready to step in and uh, contribute. He he doesn't have anything to prove anymore at, at the AAA level. And a lot of scouts are really excited about what Jimmy Nelson can do. And I, I still think he can be a, a mid-rotation starter. And so what they were able to do is they were able to trade from strength. They were able to trade from somebody that was going to uh, leave. And they were able to get a couple of, of young players who can come in either this year or next year. And I know since the bullpen right now projects to be one of the weakest parts of the team, I'm not surprised that they went out and got a hard thrower and somebody who could be a back-end uh, bullpen piece like Neville. It's just a matter of, you know, if his elbow holds up. So um, I wanted to ask you about Ryan Braun, um, because if you looked at Ryan Braun's numbers over the, you know, his career numbers, it would look pretty clean. It would look like he peaked at age 27, as we kind of expect a lot of players to do. And then he got a little worse at 28, and then he got worse at 29, and then he got worse at 30. So this would be his third year in a row of decline. Um, And... I know that the decline this year, there was the outside factor. There was the thumb. There was the way that it changed his approach. And so I'm wondering, do you think that without the thumb, we would have seen um, some decline from 2013 last year? Um, Or uh, is he still closer to the MVP kind of guy who he was at 27 and 28? If, If there had never been a thumb injury, would we be talking about him still as a superstar um, or, or was there a little bit of that steady decline going on anyway? Yeah, it's, it, and I might be looking at this with rose colored glasses and I know a lot of maybe non Brewers fans will, will accuse me of this, but I, I do still think he has a lot of talent and maybe it won't be MVP caliber, but even if you look at the first half last year when he still had thumb issues and he was being, uh, benched a little bit. Well, not benched, but he was being sat near the, the end of the month of April and into to May because he was still having issues holding onto the bat through the strike zone and through contact. And he still hit 298, uh, 348, 515 in the first half before really nosediving in the second half when it 
became more of a nerve issue that went into his whole hand and not just his thumb. Uh, so, I mean, he he was really good in the first half, or at least uh, better, well better than average. Yeah, on and, June on June first, he ended the day hitting three twenty seven, three sixty seven, five ninety five, which is a nine sixty OPS. It's hard for me. I I don't really know the nature of his thumb injury that well, so I don't know whether these dates where he kind of hit his peak uh, for the season and so on are significant or not. I didn't like so he was in pain to some degree all year. Do we have kind of key dates that that mattered that really changed him? I don't have any key dates off the top of my head that I can remember. It was a situation in which he was complaining about the thumb injury in spring training. Um, and then I remember the conversation happening uh, on the road trip to San Diego where he just started to look lost and he, they were talking about his thumb injury. Um, but it was right around uh, the all-star break and a little bit before that, that that like it started to come out that he was having pain even shaking people's hand. Um, that he was having a lot of pain any time that he was putting pressure or he was trying to exert pressure with his thumb and his hand in general. Um, and in August, there was some debate on whether or not he was going to uh, undergo surgery. He was going to undergo the experimental surgery in August. Um, but at that time, they were in first place. Uh, it was an experimental surgery, so they didn't know really what was going to happen or what to expect or what the time frame would be until he could return. So they opted to try to play through it and uh, try to go for the NL Central crown. And that obviously didn't work out as well as everybody would have hoped. And he was a pretty big anchor that dragged down the, the Brewers offense late in the year. And so some people have criticized not doing it earlier. But um, I know that it progressively got worse to the f to the point that they were he I, Ryan Braun did an interview in which he was comparing it to uh, touching a hot stove where there's nothing that you can do but pull your hand off. And so he said as soon as he made contact, you know, his hand had to come off the bat and it was an involuntary reaction. Um, and Stuart Wallace for Beyond the Box score before he left for, for his, uh, his new role with the, the big league club wrote a nice article talking about the effects of what the thumb injury would do whether the prospects of him coming back this upcoming year uh, was possible. Um, so, I mean, there's been a lot out there, and I'm not smart enough medically to know, you know, how nerve pain works other than the fact that it sounds like it hurts. Um, but I, in terms of specific dates, it just seemed like the narrative went, that it got worse and worse as it went on. And then right around the All-Star break, it came out that it was like his entire hand was hurting. And so there are a couple of rotation vacancies left by Estrada and Gallardo. So how are you feeling about the rotation now? You've got a few guys coming back, Peralta and Lotion Garza, but you're also relying on Mike Fires again. And then there is Jimmy Nelson. So what should we expect out of those latter two? Yeah, Fires is a wild card um, just because... He's shown that when his fastball command is, is spot on, he can be extremely effective. And in some ways, he looks a lot like somebody uh, like Chris Young in terms of having an underpowering fastball, but pitching high, uh, getting a lot of pop flies, getting very few ground balls. But he can miss bats, too, because he's got four pitches. And so fires when he's right can be good, but like, like we saw a couple of years ago, when it, when his fastball is not good, he he's unplayable. And so, 
you really don't know what you're going to get. Uh, Fires a couple of years ago when he really had his troubles in the, in the big leagues. Um, He, I mean, I don't know how much like this plays into anything, but he was having some some family trouble in which he was uh, his mom was really sick and he was actually flying home in between every start to be with his family. And so that's hard. And that was a lot of talk last year about that's how he was able to move on the next year because he was able to get back in a routine and he was able to to not have to deal with that. But uh, how much that comes into play, I'm not sure. Now, Jimmy Nelson is somebody in which. Uh, a non-brewer scout have put anywhere from like being a potential number two to a really solid three. And what I really like about Jimmy Nelson ever since his career has started is every time he struggles at a level, whether it's low A, whether it's high A, whether it's double A or whether uh, it's even triple A, what he's been able to do is if he struggles the very next year, he takes a huge step forward. Um, even la- in 2013 at uh, AAA, put together a 3.67 ERA, which isn't fantastic, but his walk rate, what, he was walking uh, 5.4 batters per nine innings. Uh, but the next year when he repeated the level, he was able to put up a 1.46 ERA. His walk rate came way down, so it was only 2.59 batters per nine innings, and he was striking out more than a batter per inning. And so... Nelson has a fastball that is a lot like what Willie Peralta is able to put together, but his slider's much better. And so I actually like Jimmy Nelson long-term more than I like Willie Peralta. It's just a matter of whether or not he's going to be able to be effective immediately next year or whether he's going to need a little bit more time to be able to put things together. But based on what he's done throughout his pro career, even back to the University of Alabama, if he has a really tough year, when he's able to repeat that year, he takes a pretty big step forward. And so I know the organization is is banking on that. Uh, the organization had some reservations on whether or not Gallardo was going to be able to continue to be a league average pitcher. So they decided to make the swap and put uh, Jimmy Nelson in, trust the youth, maybe deal with some growing pains along the way, but able to add some some young guys going forward. The, the big question is going to be, who steps in if anybody gets hurt or fires is ineffective ineffective or Nelson is ineffective or anything of that sort. Because when you look at number six, number six, number seven, number eight, in terms of the starters and the wings, it's, it's not always pretty. Well, I wish I'd gone back and re-listened to the May 1st episode with you to see whether you had made any predictions uh, about the Brewer season that I could have made fun of. But in the meantime, <laughs> we will, uh, we will ask you to make a prediction for this season that we can later make fun of. How many wins do you expect the Brewers will have, and uh, where will they finish in? Uh, well, actually, let's just say where will they finish in the division, and what division will it be? We'll give you, we'll give you a softball there. Oh, nice. I, I will pick the NL Central out of the ones that are available. Um, but I, I think they probably finish third. Uh, I'll even go forward, and I'll, I'll say a win total. I think that they win 83 games. Um, 80, all right, 83 games, third place, NL Central. All right. Yeah. What the Pakoda say, Ben? Do you know off the top of your head? It's like 77, 78. Is that right? That's low. That's lower than I would have thought. Uh, just because I thought that uh, they're at 80. Yeah. They're in that big mat. There's like 15 teams between 78 and 84. So they're right mm-hmm. in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thanks, JP. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again. All right. So you can find JP on Twitter 
at JP underscore Breen, B-R-E-E-N. He also writes for Baseball Prospectus. Stay tuned for the next segment. After the musical break, Sahadev will be speaking to Joe Block. What's made Milwaukee famous has made a loser out of me. Welcome to the second half of the Effectively Wild podcast. I'm Sahadev Sharma, Associate Editor for Baseball Prospectus. With me is Joe Block, who does the radio broadcast for the Milwaukee Brewers alongside Hall of Famer Bob Euchre. Joe, I'm sure you get plenty of questions about Bob Euchre, so... I'll just, uh, well, you know what? I, I won't skip that. Tell, tell no, me, you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. T- tell me, uh, tell me one, or if there's more than one, one great story, one great thing about working with Bob. I mean, it's got to be amazing. How many hours do we have for this? <laughs> um, no, but uh, he's, he's terrific. You know, one of the coolest things about him is you don't know what's going to happen on a day to day basis. You know, uh, for instance, uh, uh, just what he's going to say and what he's going to do is cool. I mean, we hear it on the air, just how, you know, how much fun he has with every baseball broadcast, but also, uh, you know, behind the scenes too, because he knows everybody and everybody knows him. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of times when we're out on the road, uh, uh someone, you know, kind of, uh, out of the woodwork will pop into the booth and, and he won't even know, uh, you know, how, why is this person here? So like, you know, for instance, um, and this happens all the time, but one particular instance was, uh, we were in Kansas city a couple of years ago and, uh, get a kind of tap on my shoulder and I'm closer to the door than, than he is. And I turn around, I go, this guy looks really familiar. And he's like, Hey, can you get you for me? I said, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'll go tap him on his shoulder, you know, middle of the inning. And, uh, and he goes, Hey, Coop, I go, Coop, is this Alice? This is Alice Cooper. Like, what is Alice Cooper doing in Kansas city? Uh, but yeah, but so, uh, so Alice Cooper came in the booth. I guess he had a show that night or whatever. And, uh, he and you and I started talking about the, uh, debating the merits of the Calavito Keen trade, and uh, which of course had happened maybe 55 years ago at this point, but uh, but uh, we were still debating that, and it took us a little while to get back uh, for break. But uh, you never know who's going to come in the booth when when Uke's in there. Uh, I I have to be honest, I I didn't realize Bob Uecker was a baseball former baseball player or was related to baseball because uh, until I was you know probably a teenager, uh, but because I, I just saw him on Mr. Belvedere. And then uh, I, I went to a lot of Brewers games as a kid because my dad worked. I, I'm, I live in Chicago, but uh, my dad worked in, in Kenosha, which is in Wisconsin. So I grew up going to Brewers games, and that's when I finally realized that Bob Euchre was you know, a former baseball player and did the broadcast. And obviously, you know, and obviously we all know who he is now. And, uh, definitely one of the better things about baseball, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when you get the nickname Mr. Baseball, it's not, you know, you probably uh, have a little bit to do with uh, why people like the sport. And, uh, you know, it, it, he's done so many other things, too, uh, in addition to baseball. But uh, lest we forget how much uh, uh, he's loved the game and the game has loved him. Uh, let's get to the actual on-the-field talk. Uh, Jonathan LaCroix is uh, slightly injured, I, I believe, and he's going to be out for about six weeks. But they say they believe he'll be ready for the beginning of the season. Uh, what? How much is that going to hurt as far as him getting ready to platoon with Adam Lean? And is that even a concern? Are they worried about uh, 
any long-term effects or anything like that as far as uh, him getting back and being ready to be behind the plate and be Adam's uh, platoon partner, partner at first? Well, as of now, no. I mean, there's snow on the ground. So this is the time of the year to be injured. Uh, I don't think it's going to affect him. At least right now, it doesn't uh, seem to matter at all uh, for the regular season. Um, you know, and, and Ron Renneke was telling reporters today, in fact, that Adam Lind is going to get a lot of at-bats against left-handed pitching in spring training and that there has been no decision for whether there's going to be a platoon situation over there. Uh, Luke Roy has played over at first base the last couple of years on occasion. Um, and, and he'd even tell you, you know, uh, if you play him over there regularly, uh, he's probably still not at the point of his career uh, that he could play over there regularly. He just hasn't taken... Um, had a lot of game work over there. And, and that's no slight on him. He's a very good catcher. Um, but he can play over there in a pinch here and there uh, and keep his bat in the lineup. And I think, uh, you know, there's going to be opportunities for him to play over there at first base. But uh, in terms of finding a right-handed platoon partner for Lynn, he's got to prove that he can't hit lefties first. He had a bad year last year against lefties. Uh, I think it was 061 is what he hit in a very brief amount of time. But he didn't get the chance to face lefties throughout the season. So if he sees a lot of lefties and then shows uh, that he's hapless, well, then the Brewers are going to have to find someone uh, to play over there for space, a right-handed stick. But otherwise, uh, I would actually foresee Lynn playing a good portion of the games over there, and maybe Lucroy sprinkles in uh, here and there at first. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, players that kind of come out of nowhere. I wrote about uh, the Indians have a group of uh, players that kind of surprise many as they broke out last year. Uh, Luke Roy is definitely on that list. Carlos Gomez isn't so much on that list since he was a highly thought of prospect, but some people have kind of written him off and figured, you know, this is this guy doesn't have uh, uh, the value that we once thought, and he's kind of reinvented himself in a way, become a different player than what we expected as a prospect. Uh, well, not as much as playing, but I, I'm a huge fan of kind of his attitude and the swagger that he brings to the field. You know, I think there's a line, and, you know, you, Sometimes you got to tow it. He does a good job of that. Sometimes he's crossed it in the past. But <laughs> I, I've, I, I wonder, how, how do his teammates feel about that? Have you heard anything uh, uh, regarding, you know, that, that kind of confidence that he just, you know, exudes on the field? Is it, is it a positive thing? Do the, do the teammates embrace it? Does the manager embrace it? I'll give you, I'll give you a good comparison. All right, another uh, a former Brewers outfielder, Niger Morgan. When Niger Morgan was hitting 300, uh, in 2011 and was, uh, you know, winning the NLDS uh, with the base hit. And, uh, you know, his uh, his personality was loved, not just by fans, but by teammates. Uh, the next year, he uh, did not hit as well. He was a bench player uh, who was less and less used as the season went on. And so he curtailed a lot of that because, you know, quite frankly, if, if you're not hitting and you're not really contributing a lot to the team's success, you can't be that boisterous. But, you know, Gomez is is integral to the Brewers' success on a daily basis. So, you know, for him to be boisterous like that, that's great. Um, because, you know, when he was a younger player, he was a platoon guy. Uh, and uh, it was not a major part of uh, the Twins or the Mets or even early in his Brewers' career. So, um, so once he became a regular player uh, and then became an all-star, well, then, hey, you, you can, you know, you can let your hair hang out a little bit, and he's done that, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I, I I love players like that, and I believe it's something that we need more of in Major League Baseball. Like I said, just toe that line, don't cross it. Uh, as far as that offense goes, it's there's 
the bats are, you know, pretty much in every position you have established bats, whether they perform or not is a different question. I guess there's two guys that I think if, uh, if things go well for them, this offense could be really impressive. Let's get to Ryan Braun first. You can, you know, last year was a struggle for him as far as what we expect from Ryan Braun. You can uh, blame PDs if you want, but he also had uh, the thumb injury. Uh, I noticed that it, it seemed to be nagging him throughout the season. It Was that an issue for him? I know thumbs are just brutal for uh, offensive players, and thumbs and wrists in general. If, you, if you're having a nagging injury in that, in that area, you, it can sap a lot of that power. Is that an issue for him? Is that something that's completely healed, or is that something that we have to look for, look to? look at going forward yeah, he said right now that i mean he's gotten all full clearance the only thing that they're restricting from him right now is extra hitting so you know he's not going to go take an extra 200 swings uh you know or, or anything like that right now just uh just in the sake of precaution because last year uh you know the first half of the season he was pretty close to what uh you know pretty close to what we've res- you know what resembled ryan braun and then in the second half of the season it, it was not even close and that uh, the thumb area started to wear down on him as the year went on. And, and, you know, pitchers smartly exploited that. They would come inside on him and a pitch that he would normally destroy in, you know, his MVP years and prior, uh, a year and prior, um, you know, he would take that inside fastball and and pull it and hammer it. Uh, Or, you know, if you got a breaking pitch or something, he might take it the other way. But, you know, in this case, now he was getting tied up. And then he was also chasing pitches outside the zone to try to maybe do too much. So, he was really a mess offensively in, you know, the last two, three months of the season. So he's fully healthy now, he says. And if that can, you know, if that thumb can hold up or the rigors of a full season, oh, boy. I mean, you know, to have that bat back in the lineup and several others, too, that, that did underperform, especially in the second half of last season, um, the better offenses in the National League. And that's what made it so surprising uh, at the end of last year. Uh, Gene Segura, obviously a rough 2014. He sputtered down the stretch in 2013, but uh, had various injuries, got hit in the head with a bat by Brian Braun by accident, lost a child, just an awful situation for him. I, I'm sure 2014 is a year he wants to forget. What What are the expectations for him? If he's just even, uh, you know, 80% of the, the first half of 2013, I'm sure everyone will be thrilled. Yeah, I mean, he hit 340 uh, in that first half or something in that vicinity. I mean, I, I don't know if you can expect 340 out of any hitter in the major leagues these days. But, uh, you know, what he did last year, I think he hit about 244. The big league average is 255 for a shortstop. And, uh, you know, if he can hit around a big league average or better, that's fine for your number eight hitter. You know, what he didn't do is he wasn't stealing bases as much. Um, he was not punching the ball into the gaps as much. So most of his hits were singles. And that's unusual. I don't think you're, you should really expect more than, you know, 10 home runs from him. But you should see some more stolen bases this year. I, th- I think we'll see him take the ball the other way uh, better, which he was so good at uh, his rookie year. And even in 12, uh, well, I guess it was technically his rookie year. And then last or 13, his all-star year, I mean. And uh, so is he a 300 hitter? I think he's capable when he takes the ball to all fields. He is. But, you know, the Brewers don't need him to do that as long as he's uh, somewhat of a, a a presence at the plate, you know, someone that they can't pitch around and defend that number eight spot, which is so important in the national league with the pitcher coming up uh, and and maybe have a little bit of havoc on the bases here or there. Um, If he does that, then he's not going to be the number eight hitter. He's going to move up in the order. So, 
but we'll see what he ends up doing this year. Last year, it couldn't have been any tougher for Gene Segura. The rotation lost Giovanni Gallardo by a trade, kind of beefed up the the prospect depth and uh, two guys that can kind of help them this year with uh, Corey Neville and Luis Sardinas. But the, but the rotation is, you know, led by a pair of veterans. There's nothing too flashy, but Kyle Loesch and Matt Garza are strong, strong top of the rotation guys. You're not going to get, a, you're not going to have anybody calling them aces. But how important is one of the three younger guys, Mike Fires, Peralta, and Nelson, one of them having a breakout, so to say, or kind of stepping up? And is there a guy that you're particularly excited about that think that this is the guy to watch? Well, Willie Peralta won 17 games last year. I don't yeah. think he's a young guy anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, you know, an ERA under three and a half won 17 games. I mean, he's a legitimate top of the line starting pitcher. And if he gets any better, which he still has room for improvement, but I mean, even if he stays what he did last year, I mean, he's a legitimate, you know, near the front of the uh, rotation starter. So, so I would, uh, add to that there's really three guys that have proven themselves you know for a long time now uh, at the major league level at the major league level including the second half of the 13th season for Peralta so with fires you know and fires when you talk about Gene Segura having a tough year last year and he certainly did uh you know fires did in 13 too uh, he lost his mom and then on his birthday he got his uh in the minor leagues he got a line drive off his arm broke his arm and was out for the rest of the season so he had kind of a lost year after coming up in 12 and really putting up numbers that were reminiscent of Mark Fidrich and Fernando Valenzuela, I mean, he was as scintillating a, a rookie as they were. The numbers prove it. Uh, then he fell off toward the end of that season, lost some confidence, had a lost 13 season. In his time in AAA last year and with the Brewers, uh, there weren't too many better pitchers in baseball. I mean, you look at the numbers, uh, you know, two and a half, two seven ERA, something like that. Uh, he had about 200 strikeouts last year between AAA and the major leagues. Uh, those are really good numbers. Now, can he do that over the course of a, a major league season? He's never done that. We'll have to see. But I'm confident that even though he doesn't have overpowering stuff, if he does what he's been doing when he's had confidence, and that is, you know, if he's got command and throw strikes, he can be very, very good. And Jimmy Nelson was the pitcher of the year in the Pacific Coast League, which is not an easy place to pitch. He set record numbers there that weren't broken in the last 20 years uh, in terms of, you know, an ERA in the ones in the PCL, which is unheard of. So if he can do anything close to that, and I think that starts with fastball command with him, uh, you know, now that he's had a half a year under his belt, uh, the Brewers rotation should be pretty solid and comparable, I think, to what the Royals took to the World Series last year. Uh, the bullpen is right now just, uh, you look at it on paper, it doesn't look you know, very intimidating, but you could have said that entering last season and, and they, they surprised early on. But how important is it if, that they add one of either K-Rod or Papelbon, both of whom they've been linked to, and it sounds like something may be happening with K-Rod, but nothing official. Is that is that essential for this bullpen to really get uh, an established closer to kind of have, to kind of put the roles in place for everyone else behind them? I don't think it's essential because I, I think they have an uh, established closer in Jonathan Broxton. He's been an all-star closer for two different years and pitched in the postseason. So, um, you know, whether they want to uh, add depth and continue, you know, I mean, look, the Brewers have had a lot of years. You know, they brought in K-Rod in that trade, uh, you know, in 11 to set up John Axford. And, you know, K-Rod's one of the more, uh, you know, uh, accomplished closers of all time. So you know, they've often worked with, you know, these uh, eighth and ninth inning guys that both have had closing experience. So uh, do I think it's essential? No. Does it make your bullpen better to add either of those guys? 
Or heck, if they wanted to bring in Soriano, who's still a free agent, yeah, he's going to make uh, any of those guys are going to make the Brewers bullpen better. They're going to make any bullpen better in the major leagues. So, uh, but right now, I think the Brewers have some guys that don't uh, maybe are shy on proven stuff behind Broxton, uh, but they have shown in flashes that they can be very, very good. Will Smith was outstanding in the first half of last season. Was on his way to being an All Star if he didn't have a rough July, in my opinion. And then also uh, Jeremy Jeffress, who's now kind of gotten some things personally in order and really came on last season uh, once Toronto released him and designated him. So uh, those two guys, along with Brandon Kinsler, who was quietly one of maybe 20 or 25 guys in baseball to have a sub three uh, relievers to have a sub three ERA uh, in baseball the last two seasons. Now you got four guys there in the back of your bullpen that you have confidence in. And that doesn't count Jim Henderson, who's closed for a season in the major leagues. If he's healthy, he's going to be able to be uh, somewhere in that mix. And whether they stretch out Tyler Thornburg or not remains to be seen. Uh, as far as how this team is being built uh, and just throughout the system, they don't have a real strong minor league organization, but but they've started to spend internationally, and they were finalists for Yohan Bancada. I think people were surprised uh, that that they made such a strong offer, and and they were considered one of the final four teams for him. Is is that kind of essential for this team? They they kind of they they're not they never really bottom out. You don't see them picking in the top five, top ten. So they have to be aggressive in, in internationally, and it seems like they they've been doing that recently. Uh, how important is it for them to to keep that system stronger, at least somewhat healthy, so they can continue to you know they've been sneaking up on people late in the offseason and picking off people like Loesch and Garza, and you even mentioned Soriano. Maybe that's a possibility. Once again, they surprise. Uh, and, and kind of stay afloat, stay in the upper half of the league while also keeping their farm system strong. Yeah, I think it's important uh, for any small market team because, uh, you know, you can't spend, un, you know, unlimited amounts of money on, on free agency. So you got to develop those guys in the system. You know, the Brewers, uh, like you said, have started to invest internationally. Uh, they bid very heavily for Jose Abreu and were just beaten out by the White Sox uh, a couple of years ago. And then uh, here with Moncada, I knew that uh, I don't know what their official bid was, was or anything, but I know that they had serious interest in him and, and may still uh, come into play with some of these other uh, players that are coming over from Cuba. Uh, but also, uh, you know, you look at the farm system and, you know, there are rankings and there are numbers. And I think we're a society that really likes to have everything ranked these days. I mean, for, you know, they, they ranked uh, the importance of each cast member on Saturday Night Live, you know, <laughs> over the 40 years. And and do we really need to know where Daryl Hammond stands, you know, on this list? Like, no, and it's just a subjective list. And and I think when the Brewers farm system gets maligned, look, if they haven't developed any, you know, really all-star type guys um, from their farm system, they've acquired a few in trades, but they haven't developed all-star caliber players the last few years. Um, there are some teams that haven't done that either, but the Brewers seem to be stuck at the bottom. They have developed everyday players, though, that have either been in their rotation, in their bullpen, or uh, in their starting lineup. And so you're not getting a lot of credit for those guys. The Brewers don't really tout their farm system uh, to these organizations that rank them. And I think they kind of get a little bit of a raw deal. But I look at results, and the Brewers have had an okay to nice uh, developmental uh, system here these last few years. But certainly being more aggressive in the international market is going to help pay dividends too for them, I think. Yeah, I think I'm always surprised at how strong of a product they've put. Well, I shouldn't say always, but maybe the last five, six years, they've, they've been pretty strong, pretty consistent about putting out a major league product uh, that that's pretty respectable, and you, you got to give them credit for that. Uh, 
Joe, before I let you go, just give me one one thing that you're looking for, a storyline or event, whatever it may be. Not what's not as much what's the key to the season for the Brewers, but what you're most excited to, to cover while uh, calling games. Well, I'm, a, I'm excited to cover a lot of things. I mean, you know, I think that the, the best part about it, though, is you never know what's going to happen. And every year, I would like to say every team, but at least, you know, 20 teams, 25 teams go into the season thinking they could win the World Series, you know. And looking at last year, uh, I don't think a lot of people thought Kansas City was going to get there. And I think the Brewers are a very similar outfit, not in terms of how they play. I think they're very different in that regard. But, you know, the Royals are solid outfit they've got a lot of guys in their lineup that are big league regulars and they had a lot of guys in the rotation no one really all that flashy but guys that are solid and they're bullpen outstanding everyone knows that uh and they made it to the world series and they could have won it um and i think if you look at what the brewers did for five months last season being in first place uh, shows that they've got all the components there uh, that they can do it. Uh, whether it happens, that's the beauty of the season. But I'm excited to just go through another campaign and see if Brewers have what it takes in 2015. Joe, thanks for joining me. Uh, why don't you let the listeners know where they can find you on social media and where they can listen to Brewers radio broadcasts. Well, you can always uh, tune in on MLB.com or if you're in the uh, if you're in Wisconsin, uh, we're on the 620 WTMJ as our flagship or then any of the affiliates. Uh, throughout the state or the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Joe underscore block. Pleasure to be on. I always love reading baseball perspectives. Now I can listen to myself on it. <laughs> Thanks for joining me, Joe. <laughs> I really appreciate that. and glad that you're a, a fan of baseball perspectives. I'm Sahade Sharma. Uh, Thank you. The second half of the Effectively Wild podcast. Be sure to be sure to follow me on Twitter at Sahade Sharma. Thanks so much for your time, Joe. Take care. All right. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. You can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can send us emails for next week's listener email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Please support our sponsor, the Baseball Reference Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We will be back with another Team Preview podcast tomorrow.